Hello, welcome to T Hanks for the Memories. I'm your host, Darren, and today we are at the penultimate uh, of the films from the Golden 14. It is number 13. It is Road to Perdition. Uh, joining me from Laying Down the Law, the Jude Law podcast, it's Alex <laughs> Gradet. Hello, Alex. Uh, I have a Jude Law podcast? Yes, yes, absolutely. Laying Down the Law. And joining me from What's New Man, the Paul Newman podcast, it is Norm again. Hello, Norm. <laughs> hey, what's new, everybody? <laughs> oh, I messed up my own catchphrase. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, so let's jump straight into it. Um, you know, we have our protagonist. Uh, which is a young Superman riding a bike. Um, mm. Now, we actually start with uh, some bookends, which are at, a, at the side of Lake Michigan. Um, and we're told that um, Michael remembers the six weeks he spent on the road in the winter of 1931 with his father. Um, this wasn't apparently in the original script, but uh, Sam Mendes did some pickup shots and he just he just like had, you know, the boys stand next to the lake and just shot it for a few minutes and was like, I'm sure I'll use that later mm. on. And then it turned out... Um, you know, to be handy as the opening. The original opening was going to be um, Sullivan putting together his his Tommy gun before he goes to kill people, uh, which appears in the hotel, which is like almost near the end of the film. <laughs> that was apparently where they were going to start. Mm. Um, but they went with this and they went with the voiceover. Um, and I like how quickly we establish exactly what's happening. When I saw this in the cinema, I thought this happened way too quick. But like within 10 minutes, you know exactly where you are. Michael cycles home. Mm-hmm. You know, he's doing his homework. Uh, apparently they added the scene with Jennifer Jason Lee because she, as we say, she's barely in it, but she was in it even less. And Sam Mendes realized they needed a little <laughs> bit more of her so that we, we felt the loss. Otherwise, you know, she just yeah. basically appears at the wake and then that's it. You get, get, get your money's worth as well. Like Jennifer yeah. Jason Lee in the 90s and mm-hmm. early 2000s wouldn't have been exactly cheap. You know, <laughs> you might as well use her while, you, while she's there. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like the run in the early 90s she did of like what, shortcuts and single white female around that time amazing you know just great stuff from her mm-hmm. and she's i mean she's only here very briefly but she the way she interacts with the kids kind of shows that you know she is the one kind of keeping the family together um you know and we get this kind of shot uh where michael sees his father kind of like putting his gun away um and kind of turns to kind of hide it um and we find out that the family are going to awake uh you know and as apparently happened at the time, uh, due to Sam Mendes's research, the body was kept on ice while it was yeah. displayed. <laughs> I was like, mm. it's a nice detail, but at the same time, this would be the weirdest. Like, you have basically a rotting corpse <laughs> that's being kept fresh by being put on some ice. Um, that, that, that felt to me like that mm-hmm. line, though. It, it almost felt like a studio note of like maybe test screenings where like people were confused as to why the, the corpse was on ice. So mm-hmm. you got to add in a line of like, it's there to preserve the body. It's either that yeah. or Sam Mendes <laughs> was very proud of this research he did. And he's like, hey, just, make, just so everybody knows, they used to do this, right? <laughs> yeah. This is what used to happen. And I'm sure now will attest this is what happens at Irish Wakes today. They just stick bodies yeah. on ice, left, right, and center. That's uh, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's common practice. Saves and- a lot of money. Yeah, and while you're there, you just chip the ice off, just stick it into your uh, into your into your scotch while you while you're having a drink. Um, yeah. But yeah, the biggest I... gripe with this wake scene is like there wasn't enough people who were there who were blatantly just there for the free sandwiches. Yeah, which is just the common thing of probably it wakes everywhere. But like any time I've ever been to one, there's always like the one family in a town. And everyone knows who they are, but they don't want to be rude. But they're like, they don't know who this person who's d- who died is. They're just here for the free food. Like, this is what you do. I mean, you know, that's what the dead person would have wanted. Would have wanted people to just come and have some free sandwiches. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, we get our introduction to Paul Newman, uh, obviously a legend, getting third, second billing on this. I mean, uh, mm. you know, below Tom Hanks, uh, you know, mm. and playing a role that apparently is based on a real person. There was a real kind of Irish mafia around Chicago. And John uh, Looney rather yes. than Rooney. I believe. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. which I, I thought was like a kind of weird change where it's like. Changing it from Looney to Rooney, but then is Looney even really a name? I mean, that's just that's just how it's made up, quite frankly. Um, but I, I, all names are made up, man. Come on. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, but I like I like the affection that he shows here towards, um, you know, first I mean, not directly towards Sullivan, but obviously towards his boys, um, and the fact that they kind of they kind of duck out to play dice. And, you know, they win some money off him and, you know, like, yeah. th- like it's made clear that there's a, a certain level of affection. And, and I, I think as well, you kind of it's interesting because I don't think it's fully you don't fully understand on the first watching that obviously, you know, um, Michael is kind of his, his adopted son in some way. Like, you know, mm-hmm. obviously his family were poor and they kind of he was taken in and that's why he kind of does what he does for him. Um, there's and there's a there's I'm sorry I just wanted to interject real quick there's a neat it. little there's a neat little acting nuance that uh that that bumped me the first time I watched it and I don't know if it was Newman's doing or or Sam Mendes or, or whom but when when Paul Newman who by the way is like my favorite actor of all time it's why I've guessed it on what's the what's new man podcast many many times uh, <laughs> uh but um. He does this neat little thing when he's offering a toast to uh, to the character who's died. You know, it, it's a pretty common toast. He get the you know before the devil knows you're dead. But the way he reads it, he kind of I, I he just puts a little pause in it so that it's like maybe in heaven at least a half an hour. Like he puts some thought into it, which bumped me the first time I saw it because I'm like I'm like dude this is a stock toast I am the least Irish person in the world and I know this one and then I realized <laughs> like it says a lot about his character that he would he would take something boilerplate and make it sound like a like he was putting some thought into it you know have that humanity to make it sound like it's an original thought but also have the grandiosity to make it seem like here's this established wisdom nope I'm the one making this up yeah. yeah 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 and i i mean i i do I, obviously you know the fact that he kind of leads this toast to uh danny mcgovern who is dead and in the scene we established that um that connor his son obviously played by danny craig is there and we also see uh kieran hines who's you know is going to be in this film for five minutes mm-hmm. like it, does, <laughs> it gives gives it gives this this kind of tiny role a level of gravitas that i'm not sure it really deserves um but I, I I like the kind of looks as well. Like you know, we see Connor looking at his father, giving the toast. We see, um, you know, that that Sullivan is keeping an eye on on you know Finn McGovern, who is kind of near, um, you know, like the kind of the the layout of what's going on is 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 just done through glances. And in the director's commentary, Sam Mendes said like a lot of this film is just done in looks, and there's not much dialogue in terms of you know certain things. So like th- there are scenes that go on where. Everything is just, you know, the, the the way the shots are composed, and that's what kind of tells you what's happening. Um, well, and so. and and it's it's so, it tells you so much about 
where the morals and ethics of this movie lie that you know the characters the 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 characters were meant to not identify with but be um sort of present in the pov of you know uh between rooney and and sullivan and whatnot but it's like it's it's pretty clear from those glances and that becomes elaborated on more clearly later like Paul Newman is offering a Rooney's offering a loving eulogy to a person whose death he was very clearly responsible for. And just <laughs> the obscenity of that and of having to, to buy his magnanimity. It's really smart because Paul Newman, among his many gifts as an actor, is like was in some ways the Tom Hanks of his time and in some ways was even more beloved because he's just the most likable performer to me he's the most likable performer in movie history and just so eminently watchable but then to realize what a just literal devil of a son of a bitch this guy is to to behave this way in a situation like this it just orients you to this movie so well hmm yeah and and what i like as well is you know uh, i don't know that we've all been at the wakes of people who've been murdered or whatever um, but we do know the person at the wake who, you know, maybe has some kind of axe to grind. And, yeah. And, and a little too much to drink. And yeah. To and, and we kind of feel it in the room that like, he, you know, he's like, this person's going to talk and there's, there's going to be an issue. And mm-hmm. obviously, you know, that's what we get with Kieran, Kieran Hines. Um, I just you know. wonder how many people in that room were also aware of Rooney's involvement in the death as well. Was it just one of these things like, oh, everybody knows, I, but you just have to be I polite f- and keep up appearances. I feel like, again, for the where the morals of this movie lie, I you're, we're kind of given the sense that, like, everybody but the kids knows this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Which, which, I think, which I think is also important because, you know, these kids do such a job of, gla- of idolizing their father and, and this, this, so much of this movie is about Sullivan de-glamorizing his line of work for his own son that I feel like even if these kids knew that that uh, they were attending the wake hosted by the by murderers, like they'd still find a way to rationalize that. Yeah, mm. I, th- I think even though there are families in there and obviously we'll see some dancing that goes on. um you know, once the once the uh, you know the the mm-hmm. the kind of the you know the eulogies have been given, um, I th- I think there's a lot of guys in there who work for these guys and they know they know what's happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Finn takes the takes the the kind of uh, the mic as it were, and he he tries to say something, but then he gets hustled away because obviously mm-hmm. he's about to kind of like give away exactly what's happened and mm-hmm. his kind of anger, and so of course you know they they kind of. It's funny because like both, um, you know, Sullivan and kind of Connor, they see what's happening and they both try to get to him as soon as they can. And I mm-hmm. think it's Sullivan who kind of reaches him first. Um, and this is obviously something that's going to be set up for, you know, the rest of the film is the kind of the tension between, uh, you know, Connor and Sullivan. Um, and uh, that is emphasized in a, a wordless scene as both uh, Paul Newman and Tom Hanks sit at the piano and they play a little tune together, something that apparently they rehearsed for two weeks. 
And mm-hmm. that is why Sam Mendes <laughs> points the camera down at their fingers so you can see they are actually playing the music. Mm-hmm. Um, it is them. But there is this intimacy between the two of them as they're sitting like so close on the piano, like next to each other on the piano stool and playing this piece. And obviously Daniel Craig is seething and just like so angry at what's happening, but just kind of smiling. And, you know, I think it's, I, is it, I can't remember if it's Michael or Peter that ask him. I think it's my, it's, it's Michael, isn't he? And and he's like, he, like he li- he literally is just like it's so fucking hysterical, like right into the kid's <laughs> face, and mm-hmm. just the way his eyes like come into shot, and it's uh yeah, it's I mean it's just a wonderful moment. It's it it basically this is going to be the kind of treatise of the film is like you know the mm. the favored son who is actually well, competent I, 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 and good at the job, and the one who's always off the side being super angry with his mm. beautiful blue eyes. Yeah, although that that scene did kind of throw me because. All we'd seen of uh, Danny Craig prior to that scene was him glowering and you know mm. the, looking really you know dour. A thing and then he the does kid says, like, "Why? Well. Why are you all?" Yeah, but the kid says, "Why are you always smiling?" Mm. It's like this is the first time we've ever seen him smiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I can't remember how much he smiles throughout the rest of the movie either. I think he just goes up and down all the time. Well, it, it's they don't have time to get into it before Peter is killed. He has, uh, and obviously, it would have been too early in the century to diagnose it. He. He must have that condition where he can't, like, recognize facial cues. So he just thinks everybody's smiling all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, and it's, yeah. It's, it's so funny watching this movie now in retrospect and and knowing Daniel Craig as a performer as we do now after 15 years of James Bond. And it seems like, like there's... I remember at the time thinking this performance was kind of revelatory because I hadn't really seen him in that much. And a lot of the things I had seen him in, like I think as like the third banana in the Lara Croft movie the year before, where he just sort of made an impression for being hunky but kind of flat. Um, And then I saw him in this, which I think was really the first time I, I felt like I was seeing him give a proper what I now know is a Daniel Craig performance, but at the time was like, what? Whoa, this guy is, this guy's something else. Mm. I mean, if you can find it, you should really try and see if you can watch uh, our friends in the North, which was like 1996, Mm -hmm. uh, because that's got him, Christopher Eccleston and Mark Strong uh, wearing a (laughs) lot of wigs. Uh, It's like James Bond and Doctor Who and, the villain from Kickass, I guess, if you want to, if you want to stay <laughs> franchise. The villain from everything. Yeah, um, and so like you know, they are you know. Well, I mean, I guess the good guy in Kingsman, if you want to kind of go that way. Um, but yeah, like you know, that's where that's kind of when I saw him in this film, that's kind of where I knew knew him from. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, we get uh, some kind of discussion between the two younger brothers because you know they. They don't know what their father does. One of them, I think, has suspicions. The other one is kind of curious. Um, you know, obviously, Michael kind of lies to Peter about what, what they do. You know, obviously, I think of the lo- the line that was in the trailer is like, he does work for Mr. Rooney is, is like the, the <laughs> most that they'll say. Uh, and I, I think it's interesting because obviously we're not going to get to see much of Peter um, as we're not going to get to see much of Annie. Um, but like the kind of the curiosity of like, what exactly is it, is it that his, his father does is of course what will then, you know, it's the first domino to fall for the, mm. you know, for the rest of the film where of course, you know, when 
you know, when Sullivan announces that he's gonna he's gonna miss the recital because he's going to work, this is where you know Michael decides he's gonna hide in the car and you know see what his father actually does for a job. Um, and we get this wonderful shot, um, you know, once we see that Connor and uh, and Sullivan are kind of like in this uh, warehouse interrogating Finn, uh, where it's shot between the legs of Tom Hanks and uh, it's kind of like on the ground. So we're kind of seeing like a child's eye view of this interrogation, um, you know, and then, you know, the kind of the inciting incident of the film is when Connor just kind of loses his rag and just shoots Finn mm. in the head <laughs> and, and then of course that's when Sullivan has to kill all the rest of the goons um, and one of them falls on the floor and of course you know Michael sees sees it and this is you know this is kind of traumatizing to him um, mm. and you know he runs out I mean that the whole kind of scene with the uh, again like Kieran Hines Kieran Hines Kieran Hines is is in the film and then he's immediately killed and you're like I didn't expect that to happen so quickly to 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 Kieran Hines um, that was that was um you you don't see it as much or at least not certainly not as much in the bond movies that he did but like when sam mendes made the switch from theater to film like he so clearly brought that discipline with him uh and that that shot of kieran hines that that fucking gorgeous slow motion shot of him toppling over having just been shot like it's 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 something you can't achieve on a stage, but it obviously has its roots in theater. Just the staging of that scene altogether is such a great blend of th- bringing theater to fi- to the screen, but also then doing things that you can't do on that you can't do on a stage. So that because because even though they're separate, you know, there's there's a wall between them. Uh, not to lean too hard on metaphor between Sullivan and where Michael is eavesdropping, but because they're basically right on opposite sides of the wall to each other, when Sullivan sees the situation and just, just defaults into having to strafe the room, like the sound design of having a Tommy gun, like right on the other side of a wall from you is so, so prominent and so jarring. And just like, like, yeah, that scene is just, is really just like, Everything Sam Mendes does well, all all under one roof. Yeah, mm. and of course, uh, you know, Michael runs out of this uh, this warehouse, and Sullivan finds him. There's a nice little kind of a moment where he almost doesn't recognize that it's Michael, and then he realizes who it is. Um, and of course, <laughs> we see we see Connor come out, and you know, smiling at this point, but smiling mm-hmm. because he realizes he has something over Sullivan now. You know, like you right. Know, and and Sullivan, who is normally the one that's in control, is now the one that's kind of on the back foot. Um, mm. And of course, you know, with it, I mean, it's pouring down with rain. But Connor says, you know, uh, you know, take this, take your, drive your son home. I'll walk. Um, yeah, mm. and I was just noticing too. He's got a lovely tweed coat on. It's like, oh man, that's you're not going to smell <laughs> that out for like a long, long time. <laughs> so. And not in the 1930s. I mean, yeah. you know, they'll probably be soaking it in borax or something. Yeah. Um, but it's such a rain. I think it's one of the visual motifs throughout the whole movie is that um, the death is sort of accompanied by water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, yeah, so this one is just like it's almost excessively so. It's like, god damn, that was a downpour out there. Mm. And like, yes. particularly at the end, too, the climax. Well, one of the climaxes has like, ex- it must have been like you know, friggin' half a river to use yeah. to, to shoot the scenes and stuff. Yeah. 
Uh, Tom Hanks uh, referred to it as uh, another Philippines downpour. Uh, that's, what he was, <laughs> uh, that's what he said each. Whenever they had rain, that's what he that's what he referred to it as. Um, so yeah, um, we then get a, a meeting of the uh, the kind of the the you know the mob family uh, as they divide up some of the assets from the you know the now both dead McGovern brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get introduced here to Dylan Baker as Mr. Rance. Uh, he was, apparently was only put in this scene so that later on Sam Mendes didn't have to spend a bunch of time reintroducing the character um, when he's in the hotel room. So he just kind of he just said to Dylan, come down for a day and we'll put you into the scene. He doesn't have to really do anything. He just has to kind of stand there. Um, and Dylan Baker, of course, a fantastic actor. I mean, hmm. yeah, um, you know, well, just- that's actually weirdly telling because I remember in that that first scene he's in. It's so awkward. He's so kind of quiet that he doesn't have anything that really sticks out about him. But then later on in the hotel, he is such a great character. We see him yeah. trying to order his breakfast and stuff. So it actually is now that you mentioned that. It's like, oh, of course that's what happened because it's so <laughs> telling that they're like, I'll just stick him in the background there. Was it obviously taking a lot of time to craft yeah. dialogue for him later and stuff to uh, really create a character? Yeah, because it's Sam Mendes. He knows what he's doing. Uh, yeah. Apparently this mm-hmm. scene around the table took 19 hours to film. Uh, because there were a whole load of shots that Sam Mendes set up and then filmed and then just didn't bother putting them in. <laughs> so they spent a lot of time. Now, I remember seeing Dylan Baker probably for the first time in the film Happiness in a role yes. that is, yeah. I mean, it, I, there's, there's no real way to talk about it without <laughs> giving entire plots away. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, if you haven't seen that, you should see it. But then... Uh, you know, also in uh, before this, I think I saw him in uh, 13 Days and Taylor of Panama and Along Came a Spider. There was like a, a run of Dylan Baker films that I, I saw for some reason. <laughs> um, but yeah, and of course, you know, also known for being the original Kurt Connors in mm, uh, yeah. Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 3. Um, you never he, know, he might be back. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I remember him also obviously being in uh, Revolution Road, as co- you know, working with Sam Mendes again. Mm. Uh, pity they never kind of found anything for him to do in the Bond films that uh, Sam Mendes directed. Would have been nice to see him in those. But yeah, he's, uh, he's only a small role here, but uh, we get to see him early just so that we know who he is later on. Um, and... You know, within the, within the kind of scene, you know, everyone I think is being given stuff, and it's not going to Connor, and obviously he's not happy. And the scene finishes with uh, a camera, apparently on a lo- like not on like a roller skate, but like a little tiny um, uh, like uh, like rig, and it just goes down the middle of the the kind of the table uh, before it kind of you know stops in front of Daniel Craig, kind of sitting there seething, um, and then he kind of goes out of focus, and we see everybody else leaving, and then it kind of you know, racks focus back onto him. It's a wonderful shot. Um, and it really kind of emphasizes how kind of alone um, and angry Daniel Craig is mm-hmm. at this particular point in the film. Uh, obviously, Connor is not happy. And this is when Connor obviously makes a choice. Uh, you know, he, he says to Sullivan that he needs to go to uh, Tony Calvino, uh, which is a wonderfully Italian name, mm-hmm. um, and and give a letter to him from his father, um, you know, he's got to collect his debts. He hasn't paid up for a while. Um, and we get a wonderful, like, I, don't, I mean, apparently there was a longer version of this shot, but I think it's great as it is. A nice little steady cam around this club, um, you know, uh, and, like going from the door with the bouncer and then follow him through the entire, like through the kind of the, you know, the, the, the kind of club part. 
uh, into kind of like the whole house and then back into kind of like just like just through the whole thing it's just a wonderful wonderfully put together shot that's um, the scene that sort of negated the purpose to make uh, negated the point of making another movie out of cabaret uh based which i know for a long time was the discussion based around the revival that the revival here in the states that had been based on his donmar warehouse version because it was where yeah. he basically said like here this I, i'm i'm the cabaret guy also <laughs> i i just want to throw a shout out that bouncer is um kevin chamberlain or charlie the explosives expert from Die Hard three and uh, ah. i love him to death i um I saw him a couple of years ago as uh, on stage out here in Pasadena uh, as Mushnik in uh, Little Shop of Horrors, and he's terrific. And he's he um, he's had pretty steady work on Disney Channel shows for the last couple of decades. He's just a guy. Every time I see him show up in something, I'm just like, I I, mm. I have never met him, and I'm always happy to see him <laughs> like he's an old friend. I recognize that. I was just, like, I know that guy from something. I never pieced together that it was Charlie. So now mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. I get no guts, no glory, and all that. Yeah. So. I mean, uh, on the commentary, Sam Mendes does like kind of call out a lot of the uh, the local Chicago color, which, you know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. like background people who were kind of big in Chicago. And, you know, he kind of praises kind of like literally every guy who's in the background is, you know, they've been in stuff and, you know, they obviously mm-hmm. bring something to it. And I do love the, the fact that this bouncer is like, you know, is there any jobs going at yours? You know, like, <laughs> you know, kind of because tra- realizing that maybe that, uh, you know, Tony Calvino is not keeping up with his bills. Maybe that, that this this club is not going to be hanging around for very long. And, but which, you know, but which also is another like another like microcosm of the Jennifer Jason Lee effect where it's like you just plant these little flags of of sympathy for, you know, this character who has four minutes of screen time but you feel bad about him because he's working a job he doesn't like and then a minute later hanks has to shoot him in the face and it's like oh (laughs) i kind of i kind of liked that guy yeah Mm. would have been nice if he could have given him a job or something Mm. uh yeah we get into the office tony he's 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 like he's like the guy in iron man 3 he's like the henchman who after tony has just like decimated room he's like you know what (laughs) i hate it here they're so weird and tony just lets him go you do kind of want him to have a moment of going like, "Look, you don't have to. I'll just, I'll let you go. Like, yeah. I don't, yeah. you don't, don't shoot me. Like, I'll, I'm like, out here myself anyway. Who cares?" Yeah, the 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 guy next to Stephen Root in uh, in No Country for Old Men, um, <laughs> who uh, who Bardem spares him only after he's like, "Do you see me?" Mm. Uh, so Tony Calvino is using a lot of drugs and is clearly not in a state to be running a club. Uh, he puts a, 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 a book over the uh, the gun that's on his desk in an attempt to hide it, although obviously uh, fails miserably. I like that the magazine's <laughs> called Pep, um, uh, obviously suggesting something there. Um, and when he reads the, the, the note, there is a deliberate choice to not let us see what the note says, but just have these back and forth glances as mm-hmm. Sullivan obviously realizes something is up. Um, you know, the letter is basically meant to be saying, get pay up all your money or, you know, and it doesn't say that. He goes to go for the gun. And apparently Tom Hanks did this grab and these shots in real time. Like he did really? it. He, yeah. Apparently he had trained a little bit to do some like gun shooting on some other film. And so he was just like, he just grabbed that gun and sh- like fired off both of those shots really quickly. Uh, and Sam Mendes was like kind of very impressed, <laughs> that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and this is one. This is basically, I think, the only time in the film where we actually get to see Hanks fire a gun and kill somebody. Um, mm, yeah. All the rest of it will be, you know, kind of framed out as it was with the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the in the when he was in the warehouse and he, he shot yeah. the Tommy gun. 
We didn't see. Although notably, yeah. it is just like, well, this one's in self-defense. Like, if he yeah. didn't kill this guy, he was going to die. So it's uh, kind of, it eases it a little bit as well. Tony Calvino like, doesn't seem like a good guy. So I'm not no. missing no. But obviously, we're sad for the bouncer because, you know, if he'd have just put his hands up or something, then maybe he wouldn't have been shot in the face. But as it is... I, I, uh, I, I do love the the very tricky morality of this movie, like I was saying before, where, you know, it's, it's um, about the levels of sympathy we find for murderers but the minute you do cocaine you're you're out of this thing yeah oh no i mean i'm sure he's doing more than just that um <laughs> and so of course we we he, we then get to see the note which is basically uh you know kill kill tom hanks and your debts are forgiven kill sullivan and all the debts are paid uh, yeah. now, of I course, a magnificent letterhead mm-hmm. on the paper. Too. Oh yeah, like that, no, a, that imprinted yeah. R is like Mwah. It's a it's a nice it's a nice letterhead. I mean, you know, it looks like a good stock. Um, let's not mm. turn this into American Psycho. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so obviously, uh, you know, Sullivan realizes what's happening. Um, he tries to get in touch with his family, but obviously, you know, that he's too late. Connor is already there. Uh, he kills Annie, uh, covering up his face. I don't know why they're going to be dead. You don't need to cover your face up. And obviously, we can, we can tell from those piercing blue eyes who it is. There's nobody yeah. else in this film has got those eyes. Um, <laughs> and then he also kills Peter. Um, you know, Michael uh, Junior is not there. Um, you know, because he got into a fight earlier in the day, and uh, you know, you know, having seen his father kill, he, you know, it obviously triggered something in him. Um, and he'd been held, you know, he's writing some uh, extremely, I mean, the the kind of that chalkboard, it's going to take it, I don't know, how, is he going to fill the whole board up? That's going to take him all day. He's doing it in cursive as well. Um, so he gets back just after um, Connor has, you know, killed uh, both uh, Annie and Peter. And this wonderful shot where, you know, we think that Daniel Craig is looking at Michael Jr., but he's not. He's looking at himself. Um, oh, and right, so, right, right. Yeah, so he's kind of like, so Michael Jr. doesn't know, you know, he can obviously see who's done the murders, but he doesn't know if Connor knows that he's there. And so he hides and then kind of Connor leaves, you know, before Sullivan is able to get back. Um, The irony being, of course, um, as in, as in, you know, walk hard, the wrong kid died. Um, Mm -hmm. He's he's killed Peter instead of Michael. So, you know, his his aim was to kill the person who saw the shootings and he's he's completely messed that up. This is obviously an indication that Connor is not good at whatever his job is yeah. meant to be. So yeah. I, I took it that he just meant to kill the entire family because he knows, like, well, if I kill the one kid, then obviously Sullivan's going to put together what happened. He's going to come out. So I thought he was just blanket killing everybody. There's a discussion later that he killed the wrong kid. Um, oh, okay. It's, it's, there's a line of dialogue. So... Um, you know, yeah. I gotta say, I gotta say, I obviously, I don't, I, uh, I do not condone Connor's actions really at any point in this movie, but as, as, uh, the father of a child who has, you know, and with a lot of friends with a lot of kids, I get my friend's kids' names wrong all the time. So again, <laughs> I don't condone the actions, but I sympathize with the predicament at any rate, yeah. like, you know, it's it's a real conundrum. Like, if for whatever reason I was told I had to go and kill one of my son's friends, I, I would I would need, like, a little... I would need to jot down on the palm of my hand which one's which. <laughs> yeah, you'd need to be like uh, Homer when he when he has, um, right, you know, right. white, white equals Lenny, Lenny, Lenny equals White, Carl. Carl Black, exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just so you know who you're going to kill. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, obviously, the kind of... I mean... 
you know, Tom Hanks, double Oscar winner, nominated for some other stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, like his grief when he kind of gets home and he realizes what's happened. And, you know, the fact that he kind of just collapses. We, you know, we never see the dead bodies. You know, they, you know, um, Sam Mendes obviously realizes that's not important. You know, we don't need to be prudish here. You know, it's like we don't need to see what's happened. We just need to see the reaction from Sullivan and from Michael. And obviously Sullivan is just, com- you know, completely, you know, just kind of just sits there and he's devastated. Um, you know, and obviously the same happens to Michael. You know, he sees them and he kind of just goes and sits at uh, at the kind of breakfast table where they'd been, you know, earlier that day um, and just kind of, you know, doesn't know what to do. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is, apparently this scene had a lot of dialogue in it originally. And mm-hmm. Sam Mendes just ended up cutting it out because it didn't add anything at all. You know, it was just too much, yeah. kind of, you know, text. It was just leave it with the subtext of him just kind of devastated sitting there mm. on the floor. Um, I think that works way, way better because mm-hmm. Sullivan just is not a talker as well. Yeah. This is one of his whole things. It's silent, stoic type. So then near the end, when he does finally talk mm-hmm. to Michael, it's kind of like a bigger moment because like, oh, they're actually having a full-blown dialogue now mm-hmm. yeah. rather than just sitting and grunting at each other. And stuff. There was also a whole scene that's cut out. There is on the DVD where um, Michael kind of starts putting away all the, the kind of crockery and the cutlery and stuff from the morning. Um, and clearing the table, which is obviously something that had kind of been in the previous scenes where they kind of, you know, his mother had said to him twice, you know, clear the table. Um, and so, like, you know, they kind of dropped that as well because they they just felt that him sitting at the table, you know, mm-hmm. having already done all that was, was more powerful. Um, we get a jump to Rooney, who is obviously angry that Connor has done this and just starts beating him up. <laughs> yeah. Have you all flashes of John Wick? Because you just know now the whole thing of like, you do, oh, you've angered the, oh, you've angered this guy now. Oh, he's gonna come down. I want to yeah. get done. Like, uh, they did, they did two takes of this uh, because obviously Paul Newman was an old man yeah. when he did this, and to preserve his energy, <laughs> they, you know, they just did the beating mm-hmm. up, and then they kind of, they kind of shot it from a second angle, and that was it. That was all yeah. the beating up they needed to do. I read actually as well that the the piano bit earlier. Uh, it was originally intended for them to do like a dance together. That was the original idea, and then I'm assuming that would have been changed because it's just like it's Paul Paul Newman's an old man. You can't get him on and do a jig <laughs> with a guy. Like, God knows how many takes would have to do. And which certainly is a very practical uh, filmmaking decision to make. But I do like like you know everything we're talking about. Uh, all the cuts that were made were all in the name of kind of streamlining of streamlining and just finding the dead center of of what you need to articulate. And if if in some cases that makes it easier for a senior citizen Paul Newman to sit at a piano bench and play a tune, which in some ways I think speaks even more clearly, even more articulately to their to their connection than a dance would have, then so much the better. And even and I remember yeah. reading the graphic novel uh after this came out. I went through a bit of a mini obsession with this. I was kind of on a Sam Mendes kick at the time. Um, with what little material he had going. Uh, and I read the graphic novel, and it is a much more conventional uh, action comic, really. You know, it's got Sullivan, you know, doing, like, I mean, legitimately sliding down banisters with, you know, guns akimbo, like like an Irish Italian <laughs> fat, which obviously mm. this is this is not that movie, and I think the movie is kind of the richer for it because we've seen that a thousand times. Yeah. 
So the really, well, the, the comic is actually has Michael uh, himself also does kill, like yeah. he does jobs with his dad, and it's kind of like the the one of the big choices of this movie is that like no, he wants his son to be better than he is, right? And so the son can never kill. That's right. the, kind of one of the the main cruxes of the story. Yeah, I mean, I really en- I I enjoy that streamlining of the action, the clarification of the morality, like everything they did was to make this as minimalist as possible without sacrificing richness. It's a really, it's a really, um, really a movie with a lot of contradictory impulses going on, uh, that all come together very well. Yeah. Um, now obviously in an attempt to kind of, uh, you know, uh, sort things out they send mr kelly to make an offer uh you know he says he can have a bunch of money he can go to ireland uh you know he says to him have you got some friends in ireland um i mean the funny thing is of course you know we'll find out later on that basically sullivan was an orphan and the only family he had was john rooney's (laughs) so Mm. you know maybe he has got some friends in ireland as i'm sure we all have um but no he's you know he he kind of thinks over the offer and then he takes his gun and he shoots Mr. Kelly in the head, um, <laughs> which kind of speaking of um, speaking of uh, Chicagoland actors, uh, this is David Darlow, who has two minutes yeah. in the in the fugitive as Dr. Lentz. Uh, he shows up in High Fidelity as a as a mourner at Laura's father's wake. Um, so he's apparently you cannot get anything done in Chicago without this guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sam Mendes was extremely complimentary of his kind of you know uh, two minutes in the film and and mm-hmm. kind of uh, you know the work he put in. Um, but yeah, this is uh, this is kind of basically uh, you know we're we're out of the first act, we're into the second act. Welcome to the second act, everybody. Uh, this is basically. Uh, that thing in Kill Bill where someone's going to make a list and they're going to go and kill a bunch mm-hmm. of people. Uh, yeah, because yeah. Sullivan <laughs> wants to kill Connor and he goes to Chicago to see Al Capone, uh, played by Australian actor Anthony Paglia, um, who in the previous mm. year to this film had been in Lantana, which is an absolutely magical film. I, mm. I would advise everybody to see it. Um, and... Um, but obviously, Al Capone doesn't want to see him. Neither does Frank Nitti. Apparently, based on a real person, there was a guy called Frank Nitti. Although, apparently, mm. he never called himself Frank Nitti. He always referred to himself as Frank Nitto, which was his problem. Oh, yeah. Nitti was I think given this to him been, by the police. Um, this must have a real thing, FBI. though, for Max Allen Collins as well, because, you know, the guy who wrote the original graphic novel, because he used to write comics for Elliot Ness as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Frank Nitti and Capone very much wrapped up in all that that, that story. and Yeah. Uh, when and, I believe too, Anthony LaPaglia actually played Frank Nitti in a movie like 10 years previous. So it's kind of like he's been promoted now. <laughs> he gets to be yeah. the boss. He's the boss and now. It's funny for me because, look, I love Stanley Tucci. I got, you know, I got two eyes and a heart, don't I? Um, <laughs> but my my Frank Nitti is always going to be uh, Billy Drago from The Untouchables. So, yeah, yeah. But who is, who is you know, this dapper thug in, in a creased Panama hat and a white suit. And so I and love... And it just looks pure evil. And now now Stanley Tucci are like, but I like Stanley but Tucci. I, but like, I love always... that about it. I love the portrayal of Frank Nitti as this exasperated middle manager at a corporation uh, yeah. And I love that portrayal of the mob, you know, because, again, in addition with the 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 tricky morals of it, like I 
this movie does nothing to glamorize the mob. Like it's just it's either a squabbling family or a faceless corporation where you gotta yeah. you gotta you know wait in a wait in the lobby to to maybe get five minutes with the boss and then probably not and then they're gonna try and kill you. Yeah, I mean that is exactly how Sam Mendes described it as well. He said he wanted this to just be a business. He wanted to lose every single thing that people thought of in terms of like 30s gangsters and, um, and kind of strip it all away and just have it be people running a business. And that's exactly that's exactly how he wanted to come across. And refresh um, my memory. Is Anthony LaPaglia actually in the finished film or were his scenes deleted? Because I it's it's I'm I'm terrible at prepping for uh for podcasts that i'm guesting on but the last time i watched this movie was about six or eight months ago i think when we first started talking about this um uh and i i know i can't it's one of those where it's like have i internalized this fact so much that i can picture him in the movie because i saw it or is it just imagination or or what so um uh is he actually in it la paglia he's briefly in it um, okay he's uncredited because the majority of his stuff was cut Gotcha. Um, but and I should say as well, obviously, uh, the Tooch will be back to uh, oppose Hanks. He's only in one. They only share one scene in this, but they'll share way more when they finally get to the terminal. And once again, he is t- <laughs> trying to ruin Tom Hanks's life. Those are the only two times they've worked together. Both times they've been adversaries. So I don't know what Stanley Tooch has got against uh, America's dad, Tom Hanks. Um uh, and also, I should say that uh, the office where Neaty is 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 a is an actual location in a Chicago club, um, mm. and it is decorated very sparsely because apparently they wanted it to be modelled after Jeffrey Katzenberg's office, um, <laughs> and <so> apparently <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg's office is very like there's basically nothing in there apart from like a desk and a chair and a computer and that's it. Um, so that's that's what they were going for. Uh, Sam Mendes does laugh when he when he says that. Uh, on the commentary. <laughs> um, but yeah, so obviously Nitty is like, uh, no, you can't kill Connor. <laughs> um, and after, uh, what I like as well is, you know, uh, Sullivan obviously realizes what's happening because he goes to get in the lift and a couple of the heavies are in there and he just hops out of the lift just before the doors close hmm. so that they, you know, they obviously can't kill him because I think that's what they're going to do um, at that particular moment. Um, and particularly as we find out that obviously in the room next door to where this meeting happened, Paul Newman and Daniel Craig are already there and, you know, they've got to Chicago before, um, you know, before Sullivan could come and request uh, permission that's, to kill Connor. That's another example, though, of what I was talking about before. If I'm remembering the graphic novel correctly, uh, I think in this particular scene, like he has to basically shoot his way out of the hotel. Uh, yeah. And instead, in this movie, instead of going for that kind of thrill, as brilliantly staged as I'm sure it could have been, it was just, nope, he just doesn't get on the elevator. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, we've seen that the lobby is full of people as well. So, like, this mm-hmm. this building is very busy. So if he's going to shoot his way out, it's going to be a lot of effort. It's, um, it's actually kind of, it's funny, too, because considering this came out, you know, the same time as the first Bourne movie, which, you know... Big, which I feel like is it, which I feel like leans very heavily on the trope of stepping into an elevator with a couple of you know a couple of big slabs of beef and then you step off and then they're on the ground and you're and and you walk yeah. out, uh, you know and then of course that moment uh, recurs in 
Mission Impossible 3 and Quantum of Solace. I feel like the John Wick movies are basically built on moments like this happening. And I love mm. that this scene predates all of those and almost seems to be like pre-commenting on them. Like, here's another way out of this situation that's much simpler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just next time, Captain America, just don't get in the lift. Just don't get Wait in the, the doors to a bad class. Just skip out. We'll and, just then you, <laughs> and you've solved all your problems. Uh, we'll you don't have them getting on there and been like, Hail Hydra. And they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Uh, to be honest, he seems like the kind of person who would eventually end up working for Hydra. Um, <laughs> 51 minutes in, and this film finally brings us some Jude lore. Uh, yeah, fun fact, yeah. his first name isn't Jude, it's David. Um, mm. So <laughs> so we get ourselves some David Jude Hayworth lore. So, um, here's a question, though. What do you guys think of this casting? Like, cause this this is a bone of contention for me, cause I'm very I'm very mixed on Jude Law and his part in this movie. Mm. Cause, like, it's just because the fact it's it's it's, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, one of the big talking points of this was that oh, this is like Tom Hanks playing against type. Like America's mm. dad is now like he's a dad, but he's gruff mm. and he's tough, and that's not usually what Tom Hanks is like. And this is at the time this was like the almost like the height of Jude Law, mm-hmm. where he's like oh dashing handsome debonair Jude Law everybody loves him you know he's he's the new Alfie and all this business, and then they try to make him ugly and they're like try like yeah we're going to try to, he, now he's playing against type and the thing is like Tom Hanks can kind of get away with it, but I find it very distracting that this part is Jude Law because it really streaks like this seems like this should have been like Steve Buscemi or something where. But then you get this really incredibly handsome guy, but they thin out his hair to make it look, and they gussy up his teeth, mm-hmm. but he still looks gorgeous. So they, like, they plucked out yeah. individual hairs for that hairline. They they literally yeah, sat Jesus. there and plucked out individual hairs. Yeah, so <laughs> and then they cover it with a hat for most of the film. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's I mean it's weird because like whenever I thought of Jude Law around this time, obviously he j- literally just been in AI, and I'd seen him in Enemy of the Gates, mm-hmm. and obviously he was wonderful in the talented Mr. Ripley. And, of course, he was with Jennifer Jason Lee in Existence as well. Uh, mm. Small E, capital X, small I, small S, small T, small E, big N, small Z. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, obviously, that's said by Christopher Eccleston in the film, who, of course, mm. was in Our Friends in the North with uh, Daniel Craig. And, obviously, Gattaca was the first time when, you know, you remember mm-hmm. seeing Jude Law. Um, so, I mean, I don't know that they made him ugly. I mean, his teeth are just, you know, 1930s teeth. Mm-hmm. And... You know, his hair has been plucked a little bit, but it's covered with a hat for most of the time. Uh, that, that, thing, that thing to remember, there being a discourse at the time that, like, yeah, they were trying to... It was like that thing, I think, that um, Tom Cruise tried to do it a lot, too, where he's just, like, to make himself a more, like, a more credible actor. He's like, mm-hmm. I can go ugly. So you get bits in, like, Minority Report where he's, you know, looking really mangled and in mm-hmm. Vanilla Sky and stuff. And I felt this at the time. It was like, this is what Jude Law is trying to do now to prove that he's, like, a serious actor. He's going to, like, make himself look a bit gross. And it just doesn't come across to me because it's just like, oh, yeah, he's really pale, but he still looks like Jude Law. It's just very, like... Eh, like this guy in this part, it's just. And the thing is, it's not. It's not a bad performance by any means, but it's just. It's really just sticks out to me that this is this guy. Like it feels like stunt casting almost. I think for me, if he gave, if his performance was less impressive, then it would be that thing where that that beautiful people do, where they give very brave performances by not being beautiful. You know, where uh, to, to, to this day, I've I've still never seen uh, the movie Monster, where um, Charlize Theron plays Aileen Warness and very famously looked not a bit like Charlize Theron. But I feel like 
so as however good her performance is in that it is so overshadowed by the discourse is so overshadowed by her bravery at at looking not gorgeous for a living for mm. a moment and i think if jude law were a less skilled actor i think if he gave less of a strong performance uh um uh, as mcguire I think, you know, I think if he, if it, I mean, he is a very convincing, uh, very convincing creep in this, whether that's to do with his, you know, his physical appearance or just, or, or just the performance itself. Uh, so I think if his performance f- was, was less strong, it would feel more disingenuous to me. Oh, as I turn 13 again, it would feel more disingenuous to me. Uh, but as a result, because of this totality of like, this you know this hat pulled low over his ears and this this very uh this kind of shriveled posture that he has and this this thousand yard stare it all it all kind of it works for me it all kind of comes together for me mm. yeah okay i mean yeah, that's fair enough yeah obviously we meet him taking a photograph of a dead body that's not quite dead yet mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so he aids that along so the photograph becomes accurate um yeah and then the character is based on uh, Archer, oh no, not Archer, Arthur Ouija Felix. Yeah, yeah. Who was a guy, like, he worked um, Dr. Strangelove, that voice Peter Sellers does. Of course, Peter Sellers, uh, played by Stanley. Oh no, Stanley Kubrick, played by Stanley Tucci mm-hmm. in The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. Oh, there we uh, go. So there you go. Every, there you go. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, the, the, the kind of notorious, uh, morally gray guy where. Peter Sellers based his voice on uh, the voice of Doctor Strangelove on uh, Ouija, and he was a famous uh, crime scene photographer. But basically, what he would do was have like a police scanner, and then just show up to like dead bodies before the police could even get there half the time. Yeah, take how, the photos to sell it to the press. It's how he got uh, the nickname. The the idea being that he had gotten his uh, he was he would get his scoops from a Ouija board. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, then now that's actually a kind of weird way to what Jude Law is going to do in here. Um, mm-hmm. Jake Gyllenhaal essentially played that character in Nightcrawler. That's it's like true. a modern version of Ouija. Mm-hmm. And that was another performance where it's like, it's Jake Gyllenhaal, but he's looking like really gaunt and weird and stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, it's just, yeah. But um, but yeah, I actually, I really love the idea of this character. Uh, and it just strikes me. Again, I, I think what I was saying um you know, it seems like something Steve Buscemi would play. Is that it's really, it reminded me a little bit of, like, was it Mr. Shush? I would, the yeah, guy? I was just going to say, Mr. Yeah. Shush from Things to Do in Denver. It, it, he, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, they're both the, the, the fixers that you bring in to kill your way out of a problem. Yeah. Mm. Things to do in Denver before the devil knows you're dead. Uh, <laughs> if anyone wants to add anything to dead or things, then uh, we can keep mm-hmm. that title going. Um, yeah, so we get the funeral of Annie and, Pe- and Peter. Obviously, uh, you know, Niti gets a call from, you know, to, sorry, um, uh, Maguire gets a call from Niti. He's hired to kill um, <laughs> to kill Sullivan. Uh, Sullivan calls his sister to find out, you know, about the funeral. Um, and then he stops at a diner. And this is where, I mean, you know, you might have expected this to take a while to happen in the film. But we get ourselves some Jude Lawrence and Tom Hanks. Um, mm. in an amazing scene as they kind of talk to each other and they both lie about what they do, in a way. Um, and uh, what it, what is amazing about this scene is the fact that um, without the help of CGI, Tom Hanks sweats a single bead of sweat. 
Um, and it is, it's just amazing. Like it, it, you like, you feel the tension ratcheting between the two of them. Obviously the shots are done where they're kind of both in the middle of the screen. Um, it's not quite the kind of Kubrick stare, but like they are kind of centered as they kind of jump between the different shots and they, they start kind of lying about what they do apart from the fact that, you know, obviously, uh, Jude Law admits that he shoots, he shoots people, but obviously in the photography sense, um, they shoot the dead. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and and I like that you know Tom Hanks lies and says that he you know he's a salesman he, he sells machine parts, and I like that Jude Law's like machine parts yeah yeah like they both seem to be acknowledging the lie and and it's just a wonderful <laughs> kind of interaction between the two of them, um, and mm. obviously as as uh, as Tom Hanks begins to sweat real sweat, um, mm. apparently the the set that day was extremely hot and that's kind of just what caused him to sweat. Uh, you when kind of want to track down Adrian Brody now, though. Can you can you, yeah, can you sweat, sweat on automatically yeah. on demand? Um, yeah, and the, the funny thing is, as well, is um, when when Jude Law says, you know, about like uh, the sweating. That line was improvised to go with the fact that Tom Hanks was mm. sweating, and so they just kind of <laughs> in the moment he just kind of said it and they kept it. Mm. Uh, we find out how you know, obviously Sullivan is not the you know he's not a, a man of words, but he's a man of action, and the action he takes here is he realizes something is up with Jude Law because obviously he's super creepy, and there's a cop there, so obviously neither of them can do anything. Uh, otherwise, I feel like this would have just ended up as a, just like a shootout. Um, mm. But, you know, so what happens is, you know, Michael, you know, he's he's like, uh, sorry, Sullivan, he's like, I'm going to, you know, I've got to go to the toilet. And before he leaves, he he grabs a knife. Now, obviously, you're thinking in your head, um, we're going to get some James Bourne, uh, James Bourne. We're going to get some uh, Jason Bourne stuff here. And he's going to mm-hmm. come out and he's going to stab him with a butter knife or something once the cop's gone. But no, uh, he exits to the towards the bathroom. Um, and we see the cop leave. And this is, I mean, I, this is so wonderfully done to kind of throw the audience and... Um, the Jude Law's character off. We hear an, a car start up, and we see the cop has left, and we think obviously it's the policeman who's got in his car. Um, but then the cop comes back into tip, and both us and Jude Law are, are stunned to find out that Michael has already got in the car and he's driving off, and Jude Law <laughs> runs out to chase him. And it's such a like the way it's done is so because it's like of course Sullivan knows something's up, and of course he's already exited and he's already in the car and he's getting ready to go. Um, before like Jude Law even realizes, um, but yeah, it's just such a well, kind of well put together like escape, um, uh, and of course uh, throughout the scene as well, Tom Hanks is acting drunk. Like he offers him some booze. Obviously, this is during Prohibition, so you know there's a kind of like an element of like, are you going to keep this a secret? Um, and he's obviously pretending to be more drunk than he is. When he gets up, he kind of stumbles as he's going to the bathroom. Um, you know, kind of, you know, lulling him into a full sense of security so that Maguire thinks this is going to be an easy guy to kill. Um, but yeah, we find out that the knife was not to stab anyone. It was to stab the tires. And, uh, mm. you know, mm-hmm. so obviously uh, Jude Law can't follow. And he does this. <laughs> he starts shooting at the car. A wonderful shot as they're driving away. And he kind of shoots out the, the back window as, as Sullivan pushes Michael down in the seat uh, behind. And... Uh, immediately the cop is like what what are you doing and he just turns and shoots the cop <laughs> and straight away obviously we we see now he is a psychopath and he's not afraid to just kill shoot a cop in front of everybody like everyone in the diner has seen that um and i just thought that's like a funny little kind of you know punctuation to that that scene um uh before we get the next part of the plan uh which is they're going to rob some banks um 
And I, I kind of like, you know, like, obviously they have an argument. This is kind of the first time, really, that Michael and Sullivan have kind of talked to each other. And they're kind of, you know, since since the deaths of, of like, uh, you know, the mother and the, and the son. And I like that they're kind of, you know, he, Sullivan is kind of angry at his son, but he kind of doesn't know why. And Michael is angry at his father, but, you know, because of everything that's happened. And obviously he's blaming himself for it. And he has to say, this isn't your fault. You know, a bunch of gangsters killing each other nothing to do with you like this that's not the reason why this is happening like it's happening for other you know i'm sure at some point connor would have tried to kill sullivan over anything like it just it's just this is the this is the excuse that he's using um you know and and i kind of like that you know like that we we start to get i mean this is going to be the rest of the film now the kind of gradual these this this father and son kind of you know coming together um and you know kind of kind of learning to kind of work together um and we get well i mean this montage probably i don't know one of my favorite parts of the entire film um a constant like left to right pan as he after after of course we meet the mayor from buffy uh who is the first person to get robbed um <laughs> as they t- as he takes capone's money um from the first bank and then this montage of just the camera constantly moving from left to right and we see uh, you know, Sullivan going into these banks, taking the money from the bank, you know, from the bank managers and then exiting and his son kind of driving haphazardly in some cases um, for him to kind of jump on to the side and kind of get into the cab. Uh, and it just the way they kind of go from bank to bank and just kind of like the way the shot just keeps on going. Uh, there is one part where they had to do everything in reverse and then flip the shot. And when they did it in reverse, they had all the signs painted the wrong way and they had to have the car drive backwards. <laughs> and it's kind of insane. It's like in the middle of this this whole thing. Uh, it's kind of interesting hearing Sam Mendes explain how complicated the shot was. But it's just a wonderful, like, of course, he knows where all the, the bodies are buried, so to speak, in terms of where all the money that Capone is keeping in all these banks. And so it's interesting that, like, that's that's his plan is to kind of, you know, anger the mob to the point where they'll let him kill Connor. 